our reading this morning is from Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, there are some available at the back on the table. Uh, Just go ahead and help yourself. And if you need a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. While you turn to the passage, let's be reminded that when we read the Bible, we are reading the living word of God. God reveals himself primarily through scripture, and so the Bible shapes and guides everything we do as God's people. So let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Revelation 3, 7 to 13. And to the church of the and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of david who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens i know your works behold i have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut i know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name behold i will make those of the synagogue of satan who say that they are jews and are not but lie behold I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my, fa- my God out of heaven, my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Um, if you are visiting with us or if you're new with us, um, we've, been, uh, we've been working our way through this series, Seven Letters to Seven Churches. These are uh, letters that Jesus himself wrote to these seven churches in ancient Asia, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. It's on, I think we have the map on the screen, Ethan. Um, as if by magic, there we go. So we started on the coast here in Ephesus. You see, Patmos is the island where John was writing this. Um, and and we've, we've been working our way through these, uh, each of these cities, these churches, these letters. And, and they're, they're recorded in the book of Revelation in this kind of clockwise direction, which is the order of the postal route. So this is the direction that, you know, the, the postman uh, would, the ancient postman, whatever that was, um, uh, would have would have looked like, um, and and we're at our second last one today. Um, we're in Philadelphia, and next week we finish with Laodicea, um, and then in our final Sunday in this series, we're going to recap it all. And uh, essentially, I hope we can uh, get a vision for what Jesus' letter to our church here would be. But this morning we're in Philadelphia. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but. Um, when I think of Philadelphia, there's just one thing that comes to mind because I grew up in the 90s and it's this. I said, does anyone else, when they think of Philadelphia, that's what they think of? The Fresh Prince. Yes, the Fresh Prince. If you're of my generation, I mean, it's still on TV all the time. Uh, by the way, the Fresh Prince, he's not here today, but this is who Tom Tabori styles his whole life after <laughs> trainers, shoes, the whole thing, or trainers, uh, clothes, the whole thing. Uh, but most people of our generation, of my generation, can recite the, at least some of the lyrics to the, to the theme tune, right? I'm sure you can plant your head in West Philadelphia, born and raised, on the playground is where I've spent most of my days, chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, and all shooting some b-ball outside of the school, when a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight, and my mom got scared and said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air. But that's interesting. Oh, thank you. I mean, I could go on. There's a few more verses. There's probably a limit to, you know, like a, some, some limit to how, many, how much time you can spend reciting TV lyrics uh, in your sermon. So. But it, 
what happened to Will Smith in this show is that when he, he started getting in trouble, his mom took him away from that. She was like, nope, you're moving to somewhere safer. And, and so often we think that we want God to treat us like that, don't we? As soon as things get tough, as soon as we start getting oppressed or uh, we start feeling opposition or we start going through something hard, we go, God, God, just take me away from this. Take this away from me. Remove this trouble from me. Remove me from this situation. And we tend to think that, well, surely if God's merciful and if he loves us, then, then he would just remove us from the trial, from the tribulation, to use this language of, of revelation. But yet, this is not what God does, isn't it? This is not what we see happening in the church of Philadelphia. This church is, is this loyal church. It's a church that's loyal to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't remove them from their trials. But what God does do is preserve them while they go through their trials. You see, God doesn't ever promise to remove uh, trials from us or remove us from our trials, but he promises to preserve us through our trials. And that's the main theme running through this letter to the church in Philadelphia. And it's, a, it's the main theme of our sermon to this morning. So if you want to take away one thing, I shouldn't say this at the start because you might just switch off. Don't switch off. But here's what we're going to be talking about today. We persevere in our faithfulness to Jesus because Jesus preserves us in his faithfulness to us. We persevere in our faithfulness to Jesus because he preserves us us and his faithfulness to us. So let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll get, dive into this, this text this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we love you, and we love that you give us your word. We love that you speak to us through your word. Uh, we believe that these words that John wrote down uh, 2,000 years ago are, are, are alive, and by your Holy Spirit, uh, you speak them into our hearts. Lord, would you make us receptive? Show us where we need to change. Show us where we, we need to accept your love and your grace and your mercy and your rebuke. Um, and may we be uh, changed because of what we hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, from history, we know that the, this ancient city of Philadelphia was, it was nicknamed the, the gateway to the east because of where it was situated. Um, it was kind of on the, 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 it was the almost the most easternly uh, Greek city uh, before you got into Asia proper. Um, and so it would have been like a, a multicultural kind of place. There would have been people from all over there and different languages spoke. And, and apparently it was strategically placed there as a way of um, spreading Greek culture and Greek language to, to the rest of the world, to the unknown world as it was. Uh, and so the, the city itself had this kind of evangelistic mission. And because it was of where it was situated, it was also important for like trade and, and, and wealth and all that kind of stuff. And in fact, when uh, later on, when some of the other coastal cities started to, um, to, to decline in popularity and wealth, uh, uh, Philadelphia grew. Um, but as for the church in Philadelphia at this time, we don't really know a lot about it. We just know what's recorded here in Revelation. Um, and John, writing these words of Jesus down, uh, doesn't record a lot of what is going on here. In fact, in this letter, uh, most of what Jesus writes to them is about what Jesus is doing and what he's going to do, not about what the church is doing. And, well, and, and that's actually pretty encouraging, I suppose. But what we do know is that they're a church of little power. Jesus tells us this in verse 8. I know, you're, I know you have but little power. They probably weren't a big church. They probably didn't have a lot of money. They probably weren't very well known. They're the opposite of the church in Sardis, the letter we looked at last week. Sardis had this reputation for being alive. They were probably a big, wealthy, you know, happy, clappy, happening church. 
In Philadelphia, it's the opposite, isn't it? You have but little power. The letter also kind of alludes to the fact that they were probably facing persecution and opposition, especially from the Jewish community. But in spite of their size, in spite of all the oppression and opposition they were facing, they remained faithful to Jesus. It's that simple. And it's to this faithful church that Jesus writes this letter. And he starts with, like we've seen with all the letters, he starts with this authoritative introduction. Have a look at verse 7 with me. If, uh, keep your Bible open because um, we're just going to work our way through the passage. Verse 7, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, that's another way of saying to the church uh, in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is quite the introduction. It might take us a bit of work to get there, but, but Jesus introduces himself to this small, weak, seemingly unimportant church and he describes himself in three ways. Firstly, he's the Holy One. This is this ancient Bible way of talking about God. This is a name for God. This is a title for God. And it's used right the way throughout the, the Old Testament. In this letter, Jesus seems to have a, a prophet Isaiah on his mind. Um, but he quotes, uh, or he, he refers back to Isaiah. In ancient times, uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke to the nation of Israel uh, and called God the Holy One. So uh, in Isaiah 1-4, um, these are some examples. He says, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 12-6, he says, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 41-14, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. In fact, the book of Isaiah calls God the Holy One 29 times. And Jesus uses this title for God to introduce himself, this struggling church. And in doing so, he's making one thing abundantly clear. He's saying, I know you're struggling, but I am God. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus is God. All the characteristics of God, Jesus possesses too, including his holiness. Now, we tend to think of holiness as uh, like piety, like, you know, being good living and, um, you know, uh, maybe not drinking or, or maybe clean living, maybe uh, all that kind of stuff. But this isn't what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, holy, the holiness of God is, is his otherness. He is completely different to us. The creature is not the same as the creator. It's, all to do, it's also to do with his purity. He's without sin. He's without flaws. In all, like we just sang this, in all of his ways, he is perfect. And Jesus says, this is who I am. Interestingly, even the, I love this, even the demons recognize Jesus this way. In Mark 12, um, Jesus confronts this de demon-possessed man, and the demon says, have you come to destroy us? That's his first words to Jesus. And then he says, I know who you are. You can read this in Mark uh, 1, 24. Um, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's what the demon says to Jesus. This man, Jesus, is the Christ. He's the Holy One of God. And even though, I mean, he came to earth and he walked around in human flesh, wearing sandals and getting hungry and getting tired, he never lost his holiness. His being is holy. His character is holy. His mind is holy. His motives are holy. His words are holy. His actions are holy. His ways are holy. His judgments are holy from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Jesus, every ounce, every, the, the, the sum, the totality, is the substance of the second person of the Trinity. He is God, the Son, and he is equally holy with God the Father, and that's how he introduces himself. 
Secondly, he's the true one. That means that he's trustworthy. He can't lie. He, he's sure. He's steady. He always fulfills his promises. He's like a lighthouse that's, you know, uh, he's like a lighthouse that's built on a, on a rock in the middle of a stormy sea. What was that? What's that, that rock out in the, out in the, uh, the North Sea that the, 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 the British are trying to take away from the Irish and, you know, the fishermen's rights? Have you seen that? It's just like this rock that comes out of the sea. And that's never moving. No matter how, that's what Jesus is. He's sure. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not about him telling the truth. He could say to them, hey guys, I always tell the truth. But he says, I am the true one. I am the sure one. And I think about this in our culture, right? The truth is pretty subjective for us. It's a, a, truth is often a point of view, right? We have, we have fake news, which is very real. We have now these really scary deep fake videos. Have you seen that where it looks like someone's saying something? It's weird. But we need something tr true. We need something sure. We need Jesus. And to this weak, seemingly unimportant church, facing oppression, cut off, ostracized by the world, Jesus says, I am the true one. I am the holy one. And 30 then, he says he has the key of David. Um, this is also uh, an illusion. In fact, he quotes directly from Isaiah 22. In chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus, uh, Jesus described it as having the, the keys to death and Hades, the keys to death and hell. Here, it's the same idea of ultimate authority. Um, in Isaiah 22, uh, this idea of the key of David is mentioned. And in those days, the steward of the king would hold the keys to the kingdom, right? So the, the steward had the authority of the king to decide who was allowed to come in and who was to be kept out. He had the authority of the king. Uh, and this, he was the gatekeeper. And this is what Isaiah 22 says. Uh, God is speaking of, of one who is to come. And he says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Jesus has, has given this direct quote from the prophet Isaiah. Probably because we know it's the Jews that were giving, giving the, the Christians a hard time. And, and Jesus is saying, all these Old Testament prophets, all these Jewish scriptures, they're actually pointing to me. I'm the one. I'm, you see what God wrote there in Isaiah? That He was talking about me. The key is on my shoulder. I mean, we need to clarify, it's not like he puts a, a, a tiny key on his shoulder. Um, he could have just given him a key ring, but it wasn't like that. The key was um, a big wooden lever that you would use to like open the gates and bar the gates and that kind of stuff. And so Jesus takes this on his shoulder. He holds the key to the kingdom. Jesus is the only one who has authority to, to, to grant access to the kingdom of God. No one else. Uh, and Jesus says, I am the door in John 10. He says, if anyone enters by me, they'll be saved. There's only one way into the kingdom of God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And when you trust Jesus for salvation, he opens a door for you that nothing can ever shut. Who opens, no one will shut. Who shuts, no one will open. You see, if you're a Christian this morning, you're in the kingdom of God. Jesus has opened the door to you, and no one or nothing can ever close that door to you. Our salvation is based entirely on Jesus Christ. The holy one, the true one. And what he gives to you, no one can ever take it away from you. Not even, not even yourself. And this is exactly what this church need to hear. Uh, and Jesus shows us why they need to hear this. As he, he gives them our second point, his all-knowing evaluation. 
Uh, Jesus has these eyes like flames of fire, you'll remember, uh, and, and chapter 1 tells us, and, and he has this penetrating gaze, and he looks at his church, and this is how he evaluates them. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Uh, Philadelphia is the loyal church. That's what it is. They've been, they've been faithful to the gospel. They haven't denied Jesus' name. They faithfully live with integrity and just stood up for Jesus. And, and it's interesting that he has no criticism for them whatsoever. He doesn't say, good job, guys, but why is there not more people in here? Or good job, guys, but why, why, are, you not, why, why are you not better known? Why do you not have more power and influence? He doesn't. He doesn't criticize them at all. He just gives them encouragement and promises and he, again, he uses this image of the open door. Um, I think here it has this double meaning. There's, the Bible uses the, the doorway language in two different kinds of ways. Firstly, the open door is the, the, the um, open door to service. So that is, it's, it's gospel opportunities. So, you, I mean, there's even a, a Christian organi- missionary organization called Open Doors, right? And, and this is a biblical way of talking about opportunities to go and share the gospel. And the New Testament is full of this kind of language. Two examples are in, in 1 Corinthians 16, um, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. In other words, he, he's writing to his, 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 his church family in Corinthians. He's saying, actually, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus because God has opened up a door, i.e. there's opportunities here for me to share the gospel. And then in Colossians 4, it also says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ. Actually, Paul said, pray that God would open doors. Pray that God would, open, would give us opportunities to share uh, the gospel. And if we consider uh, the context that Jesus is writing into in Philadelphia here, they were the, they were the gateway to the east, remember? They, they had this task, the city was tasked to, to spread the language and culture of Greece. And, 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 and they had done a good job of that. And in the same way, the church... Uh, was given this opportunity by God, this open door of opportunity to spread the gospel. And when we think about the door that, that God has opened for them in this way, we see that, that Jesus knows their works. And they've been faithful in walking through that open door, haven't they? They haven't denied Jesus. They've worked hard to advance the kingdom. They've kept his word. And this makes me wonder, what would, what would Jesus say about us? Because in all these letters, Jesus evaluating these churches, and there's only really one opinion that matters, and that's God's. And, and what would Jesus say about us? I mean, think about it. What doors of opportunity is, is, is God opened for us in our context, around these streets where we live? Do we live and speak the gospel so that Jesus could say, Village, you have kept my word and you haven't denied my name. See, I think this applies to the church, but also applies to us individually because we make up the church, right? And, 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 and I think just like this church in Philadelphia, it doesn't matter how, how powerful you think you are. It doesn't matter how weak you might feel. It doesn't matter if you feel worthy or not. Or it doesn't matter if you're saying, oh, no, I'm not in the right place in my head. I'm not in the right place with God. We need to take these opportunities 
We need to walk through these open doors. And, and the encouragement is that actually it's God who opens the door. And what he opens, no one can shut. So if there's an opportunity to share the gospel, you don't have to be afraid because God is the one who's opened the door. All you have to do is walk through it. And that means that in those opportunities, we share the gospel with confidence. It's not dependent on how much power I have or, or how much influence I have. I mean, Jesus says, you have but little power. But I've opened the door and you've been faithful. That's what he calls us to. Secondly then, this open door imagery is, is a reference to the door that has been opened to the kingdom. It's, it's this, the open door to salvation. And it means like a permanent residence in the kingdom of God. And, and, and we see this right throughout Revelation. This is how Revelation uses this door imagery. Even as, at the start of this letter. Jesus is the holder of the keys. Jesus himself is the door to the kingdom. And if we consider, again, the context of this church, they're being oppressed by the Jews. They would, they would be locked out, literally, physically, of the synagogues. They would probably be ostracized. We've seen this in other cities that we've looked at. The, the church would have been ostracized. They would have been shut out of, of business meetings and, and trade deals. They would be in the outside of, of society. They'd be locked out. They were harassed for their Christian beliefs. The Jews thought they were blasphemous. They, they were, thought they were blasphemers. They're, to the Jews, the Christians' faith was offensive. And they wanted them to be treated like outsiders. But here is Jesus. He just affirms them that they are insiders. They're accepted by the true and holy one. They're loved by the one who has the keys to the kingdom. And the encouragement for us is that, that even though the world tries really, really, really hard to close us out, we have acceptance in the eternal kingdom of God, right? Because Jesus loves us and he's accepted us. And, that, and what Jesus opens, no one can shut. And so our encouragement is that even though we're excluded by the world, we're accepted by Jesus and he will never close us out. And if we put these two, uh, two interpretations of the door together, what do we get? We get this. We're when we're fortified in our salvation, that should lead us to be faithful in our service. In other words, the encouragement that God has opened the door to us to the kingdom and no one can close us out means that, that we should be faithful in taking those opportunities to share the gospel. Because he's opened the door to the kingdom, we should be faithful in walking through the, the, the doors of opportunity. Jesus says, you've been faithful in your service. Um, and he encouraged them also that their, their, their salvation is secure. And no one can take that away from them. Uh, my, my prayer for our church is that, honestly, that we would just follow this example of the church in Philadelphia. Like, I, I don't, we're, we're not about having a great name for this church. We're not about even being the biggest church in, in the city. We're about being faithful. I want Jesus to come back and say, you guys have been faithful. You've not denied my name and you've been faithful to my word. And that comes with opposition. That, that comes with being ostracized. It comes with people thinking you're weird. Or actually, you know what? The world is moving. Our culture is moving to not just thinking that we're weird, but to thinking that we're harmful. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. I've accepted you. Just quickly, one, one thing that I really love about this particular letter is that most of it is taken up with what Jesus is doing, not what the church is doing or not doing. I love that. He knows what they've been up against. And then he gives them these promises. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Behold, 
I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them uh, come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patience and patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus promises this small faithful church two things. Firstly, or he promised them vindication and preservation. Firstly, they're going to be vindicated. That just means um, that, that what they believe and how they live is going to be proved by Jesus to be true. That everyone is going to see that actually the way they live and what they say and what they believe is actually right and true. And so these Jews that have been harassing them and opposing them will come to the realization that Jesus is the true God and that he loves his church. And Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. And we saw this in the letter to Smyrna. Jesus isn't being anti-Semitic. The Bible never allows us Let's be very clear about this. I can't say this enough. The Bible never allows us to discriminate against anyone because of their race, ethnicity, or religion. Jesus isn't being anti-Semitic. He, he's a Jew himself. But what he's saying is these particular Jews in this place, the way they're living, the way they're behaving, is in line with the, in line with the agenda of Satan. That's why he calls them a synagogue of Satan. They've been harassing the church. But Jesus is going to vindicate the Christians. He's going to show the, these Jews, that the, uh, the oppressors, that, that Jesus loves them. And when he says they're going to bow down at their feet, he's not, talking that, he's not saying that these Jews are going to come and worship the church. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's actually going back to the prophet Isaiah again. And we see this uh, example of when, when, when um, the, Isaiah says, your oppressors will come over to you and be yours and they shall follow you and they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. It just means that they're going to recognize that the people of God were right all along. They were right to trust Jesus. Uh, there will come a day when the church, there will come a day when those who persecute the church will recognize that Jesus is Lord and that they were wrong to oppose the church in the first place. That's going to happen. And Isaiah 45 goes on and says, In that day they will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you. And there is no other, no God besides him. So no matter how much the world ridicules us, no matter how much we're excluded, no matter how much we're, we're seen to have the, 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 the harmful or the weird or the old-fashioned opinions, no matter how much we're slandered against, there will come a day when Jesus will prove to the whole world and to all of history that he is Lord and that he loves his people. That's going to happen. That's the vindication. Secondly then, Jesus promises that he will preserve his people. He promises preservation. He says, because you've kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. As you saw at the start, I don't, this isn't about God removing his people from trial and tribulation. There is, it seems like there's going to be uh, times of, of heightened tribulation for Christians. We've already seen uh, in earlier letters that Christians, faithful Christians, suffer for the name of Jesus. But, but Paul also uses this idea in Acts 24 when he says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I.e. that means that on our, journey to, to, on our journey to Jesus' return or to our death and when, we enter, when Jesus um, consummates his kingdom, we're going to go through hard times. We're going to go through tribulation. We're going to be oppressed and opposed and harassed and persecuted. Jesus himself tells us in John 16, in the world you will have many tribulations. So Jesus doesn't mean he's going to remove us from the tribulation. 
but he is going to preserve us through the tribulation. I don't know if you ever heard of the, the, the high priestly prayer in John 17. Uh, before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays and he's praying for his people. Uh, and, and, and one of the things he, he prays in John 17, 15 is, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The same word, keep, keep them. It doesn't mean that God will remove his people from suffering. Don't ask that you would take them out of the world, but you would keep them from the evil one. He's not promising that, that, that preservation, or he's promising preservation, not prevention. In other words, Christ is going to provide us with the, the sustenance to persevere through the trials, through the tribulations. They have kept his word and he will keep them. And if we're faithful and keep, that, that means that if we treasure and obey God's word, then he will preserve us through times of trial. You see, Jesus doesn't keep us by removing us from trial, but preserving us through trial. We're going to face opposition. We're going to face trials. We're, we're probably going to end up in a not too distant future where we could face some serious persecution. But don't ever think that God has abandoned you. If God opens doors of gospel opportunity, then he's going to be, be there with us as we walk through them. And if we step out and share the gospel or stand up for the name of Jesus and we, we face opposition as a result, and we will, we don't need to fear because Jesus says, it's okay, I'm with you, I'm preserving you. You can do this because nothing can ever separate you from my love. Who shall separate us from the love of God, Paul says in Romans 8. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So we don't have to be afraid to share our faith in Jesus. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to. I'll seem weird in front of my friends. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't even have to be afraid of failure because God's the one who opens the door. And he's the one who's keeping us. Jesus keeps us. And so we persevere in our faithfulness to Jesus because Jesus preserves us in his faithfulness to us. Jude 24 tells us that uh, we don't have to be afraid of failure because he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So we persevere with confidence knowing that in him we can't fail because he's preserving us. He keeps the faith. We don't keep the faith. If I was responsible for keeping my own faith, I would have lost it a long, 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 long time ago. I would lose it multiple times a day. He preserves us. And then Jesus gives this church a call to action, the appropriate exhortation. Exhortation is just a, a call to do something, a call to action. And in verse 17, he gives them this really short, really simple word of encouragement. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may see your crown. It's that simple. Jesus is just saying, you guys are doing it right. You're doing a great job. Keep doing it. Hang in there. The finish line is close. That's what he means when he said he's coming soon. Your endurance is going to pay off in a short time. Um, uh, 
it's, it's good that Tom's here this morning. A number of years ago, um, this is my humble brag, a number of years ago, we, a few of us cycled from Belfast to Paris. Be impressed, it was amazing. Um, I'm only joking. Um, but don't be impressed because it's probably fair to say that we were not at all physically equipped uh, to do that. Um, we, I mean, by the time we got there, we were kind of, you know, walking like John Wayne and all that kind of stuff. Um, but on the morning, um, we were doing about 100 miles a day, and in the morning of our last day, I think we were all a bit just down in the dumps. We were physically beat up. Um, some of us had, had bandages. One of us had to pull out, all that kind of stuff. But off we set, and we were all just, like, getting through it. Um, and so I thought, well, a good idea, and we were still over 100 miles, about 100 miles to go. And so pretty early in the morning, I thought it'd be a good idea to stop for coffee um, because, you know, postpone the inevitable pain. Um, and you know what? We stopped at coffee. We, uh, we stopped this cafe. We were sitting outside, and I, and I asked the waitress when she was bringing our coffee, I said, how far is the Paris? And the news was like, what she said was like news to our ears. She said, it's only 90 kilometers away. 90 kilometers. That's about 55 miles. So all we, I mean, suddenly the finish line that seemed so far away was suddenly within our grasp. And we're all like a bit downcast. But as soon as we hear, wait, we just have to do this for another few hours and the finish line is there. And what was unreachable, what seemed unreachable, suddenly became so close. And that word of encouragement, like, hey, the finish line is close. That just gave us the mental strength and energy to keep, all we had to do was keep those pedals turning and we would get there. And this is kind of what the encouragement that Jesus gives us here. The end is near. Keep going. You're almost there. Just keep being faithful in the small thing. Keep those pedals faithfully turning. You see, persevering in the faith isn't about doing amazing things to change the world. Most of us are never going to change the world. I'm sorry if you have aspirations. Most of us are not going to be massive famous preachers or evangelists or missionaries. That's reserved for a few people. But that doesn't impress God as much as just being faithful in the small everyday things. Perseverance in our faith is, is just about everyday faithfulness to Jesus in the small things, in the unseen things. And most of those gospel opportunities to walk through those doors are, are just probably unnoticeable to most people. It's about the routine faithfulness of the average Christian. It's living with integrity. It's enduring endurance in our suffering and, and disappointments. It's persisting in our struggle against our sin. It's love for one another. It's forgiving each other when we mess up. It's faithfully sharing the gospel with your close friends and family. The race, the, the race of the Christian life is won through faithfulness in the small things. There's not a, nothing better in the eyes of God that, that, than everyday Christians doing everyday things in the way of Jesus. And sometimes, uh, and, and someone said it this morning in our prayer time, uh, you know, sometimes we're, we're, we're so busy thinking what's next and what's over the hill and what's the next big thing that we, we miss where God has put us now. We need to learn to blossom where we're planted. So let's keep going, church. Be faithful in the small things. No one can have the conversations uh, that you can have. God has put you in your context with the people around you because he needs you there. I don't know your friends. I, don't, I can't speak to your parents or, or your loved ones. Only you can do that. God has put you there. So let's persist. Let's keep going. And he promises so that so we won't lose the crown. This is the, the victor's crown. You know, and uh, you've seen the pictures of the laurel leaves. This is the, the crown that's given to the winners of the ancient games, the races, the Olympic games would receive the crown of laurel leaves. For us, it's not a physical crown of leaves. 
I don't know. Maybe when we do get to the new creation, we'll be wearing, you know, cool crowns. That'd be kind of nice. I don't know. But I think it's symbolic. It's this imagery. It's the imagery of, of running the race, of persevering, of fighting your hardest. And we get this prize, which is eternity in the perfect new creation, in the presence of God, in perfect community with all the saints. So let's keep going. How do we do this? Well, in our church, I mean, this looks like, I mean, it's faithfulness in the everyday small things of your life, but we also have our missional communities. If you're not part of one and you're, you're planning sticking around this church, then speak to me afterwards and we'll get you plugged into a missional community. And, and we, we, how we support each other, how we, we live on mission together. If you don't have a core group, then start one up with, with two or three other people so that you can encourage each other and spur each other on. As Paul says in Philippians 3, For this reason, I press on towards the goal for the upward call of knowing God in Christ Jesus. Let's keep going, church. The finish line is so close. Let's hold fast to what we have so that we don't lose our crown. Finally then, Jesus finishes his letter like he does with all these churches with an awe-inspiring conclusion. Let's read verses 12 and um, 12 to 13 together. Jesus says, The one who conquers, we've seen this in all of this. this these letters are about the conquerors. The, it's, the, it's the Nikaio, it's the Nike, the victory, the ones who overcome. To the ones who conquer, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God in the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, Jesus is saying that if, if we persevere and remain faithful to him, we will conquer, right? We're going to get that, that crown of laurel leaves. We're going, to be, we're going to be victorious. We will overcome. And to, to those who overcome if we remain faithful in the small things, if, if we keep his word and don't deny his name, we will overcome and Jesus promises that we will have a new home and a new identity. Firstly, God is going to give us a new home. Jesus says that the one who conquers will, will be made a pillar in the temple of God, right? Now, that's a kind of an odd thing to say, um, but that just means that we will become the dwelling place of God. And we see this in Revelation 21. That, that God is, it just means that God is going to uh, dwell with his people. And, and we will be uh, his people and he will be our God. And, and actually, the, the, the New Testament's full of this idea. In the Old Testament, there was a physical temple, a building, where the presence of God dwelt in one physical geographic location. But not now. Now the church is global. And where, where we are... We are making up the temple. First Peter 2 tells us that, that Christians, the church, you and I, we are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. We are the dwelling place of God. And I know this is a hard concept to understand, but it just means that, that, that God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. And, and in these uh, ancient temple times, pillars represented three things, Right? Um, they represented beauty, strength, and permanence. So uh, the, the, the pillars weren't just there to hold the roof up, as it were, right? It, it, in fact, in, in, uh, you can read in the Old Testament in 
1 Kings 7, 1 Kings 7, you can read about the, the, the temple of Solomon, this beautiful temple, and it mentions the pillars. These per- pillars were, were, were ornate. They were decorated. They were carved. They were covered in jewels. They were painted in gold leaf and all this crazy stuff. They weren't just there to hold the roof up. They were there to bring glory and beauty to the dwelling place of God. And in the same way, Jesus is making us beautiful. Isn't that amazing? He's making us glorious. I I love this idea that, that Jesus, as he completes his work in us, he makes us the, direct, the decoration of God's house. Isn't that incredible? The most beautiful thing in the new creation, apart from the glory of God itself, will be the completed people of God. Me and you, as Jesus completes his work in us, we're going to be the beautiful decoration of God's dwelling place. Isn't that amazing? Hmm. But the pillars are also about strength. They do, they do serve a purpose. They do hold the building up. In Jeremiah 1, actually, the, the pillars are talked about as um, strength and stability and, and, and resist an attack. In other words, when we persevere in Jesus, even though we're weak and not powerful, just like these Philadelphians, he's going to make us strong and no one will overcome us. And this speaks then of his permanence. Jesus says, he shall never go out of it. We, he shall never go out of it. When we're in that dwelling place, we're going to be there forever, and we will never go out of it. This, this new uh, home that we have is the dwelling place of God. It's not a caravan. It's not a tent. It's not a shed. It's a permanent home forever. There's security in it. We're secure in our position as the dwelling place of God. When, when Jesus, listen church, when Jesus grants you access to the kingdom, no one can ever remove you from it. And even if friends and family and colleagues, and I know a lot of us have felt this, reject us and ridicule us, Jesus never will. You are his forever. And this is our second encouragement. Uh, Jesus promises a new, a new identity. Um, he, he mentions that he's going he's gonna to give, uh, he's going to write the, the, the name of God on us. He's going to write the name of the city on us. He's going to write his own new name on us. Uh, in the ancient times, in the ancient worlds, to know someone's name was to have a certain amount of power over them. You could cast spells on them. You could curse them if you knew their name. It was to have power. And so we will have God's name on us, which means that we're subject. We're under his sovereignty. We're under his protection. We're under his, uh, we are his children. This is essentially a promise about identity. This is speaking to them and saying, listen, I know who you are. This is who you are. You're the ones who bear my name. How many of us struggle with identity? Oh, I mean, probably all of us. Maybe you don't feel like you know who you are anymore. Maybe you feel like your faith isn't real. Maybe you feel like, listen, the most common way that Satan attacks us, and we need to remember that we have a, a real enemy, and that we could look at the synagogue of Satan and talk about all the symbolism there because Jesus is saying there's a real enemy, but we don't have time. But the enemy is real, and the most common way that he's going to attack you and me is about our identity. Listen to this to see if this sounds familiar. Uh, do you ever think to yourself, am I really in Jesus? Or do you ever, sure, how could you be a Christian? Look how small and weak your faith is. How could you be a Christian? Or are you really saved? Because I know what you thought. I know what you think. I know what you did. I know what you said. How could Jesus say he loves you? Come on. 
Does that sound familiar? The most common way that we're going to be attacked by Satan is by our identity. And here Jesus says, this is who your identity is. And this kind of goes on for us until we become so discouraged in our faith that, that we don't even, we don't even uh, try to share the gospel. We, don't even, we feel like we can't pray anymore. Maybe we just give up altogether. And we just become, we just exist. Hear this. This is what we need to hear. This is what Jesus is saying. You're not a Christian because of anything you have done or not done. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later, and we believe that to be true, he declared to every sphere of reality, past, present, future, physical and spiritual realms, that you are his. You're not, you're not who you say you are, you're who Jesus says you are. And when Jesus declares that you're his, you are irreversibly his. Irreversibly so stop doubting who Jesus says you are. Like there's no sin, no lack of faith, no guilt, no shame, no jobs left undone that's ever going to make him go back in his word. He says no one will ever go out, but we're, we're, we're his dwelling place. We're the, we're the permanence of the pillars of the temple. Do you hear me? You're his. He's given you his name. He's given you God's name. He's given you the name of his city. And you are who Jesus says you are because of what he has done, not because of what you have not done. Jesus says that he's going to give us his new name. This is my final thought. This new name, nobody knows what that is. And I love that. I, I love it because um, uh, he doesn't reveal uh, what this new name is, but it's almost like, Satan can't attack us if he doesn't even know about it. Do you know what I mean? It's protected for us. This is our, our deposit for the future. He's going to give us this new name that only we'll know about. And someday he's going to write that name on us. And it, it, it's God's way of saying, listen, there's a fuller, truer, more expansive revelation of my glory that you're going to get to see. We've only just scratched the surface. You're only just beginning. When we get to heaven, we're going to spend all of eternity searching his glory and we'll never reach the ages. It's not a bucket that we can get to the bottom of. And Jesus says, the best is yet to come. So my time's up, but let's persevere in the faith because Jesus preserves us. Let, let, let's keep being faithful in the small things. Let, let's, let's hold on to his word. Let's not deny his name. Let's keep preserving persevering in our faithfulness to him because he preserves us in his faithfulness to us. Let me pray.